0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Um, so today we're talking about the gospel. Now, one of the one of the slogans that you'll hear now, and if you listen to audio at the church, um, and this kind of makes me laugh. I mean, I'm, I've got I, I've told people that I don't think you can belch at the Advent without getting recorded. Like they're gonna they're gonna record this thing. Um, but if you listen to all of our audio, if you see our, our um, for lack of a better term, our sort of marketing material, um, you'll see a slogan that's used, or hear a slogan that's used quite a bit. Advent is a church with a heart for the gospel. Um, now, if you ask Christians sort of all over this city, um, what's at the heart of our faith, the answer would be um, the gospel. Um, so this, is, this term, gospel, ranges somewhere near the center of our Christian faith. And yet, understanding the gospel and what the gospel is actually claiming from God's word in the Bible, that remains a challenge. There are lots of disagreements among Christians about what the gospel actually is. Um, and here at the Advent, we work from a particular tradition and understanding of the Bible and what it says the gospel is as it's revealed in Jesus. So I'm going to just work through some things. We're a small enough group here that if you want to stop me so that we can chase a rabbit, I am a a rabbit chaser, so feel free to do that. Um, But but I I wanted to start by saying that the gospel is a term... Good morning. um, Is a term that means... Can I write? Am I allowed to write on this thing here? Why not? Yeah. Yeah, yes. All right, that's not going to do it. This looks potential. Oh, there we go. So gospel, okay, for 100 bonus points, I don't know what that means. Um, anybody know what gospel kind of means on, in its basic understanding as a term? Good
1: news.
0: Good Good news. news. Um, just so you think you got your money's worth this morning, it's built off of a Greek word. uh, Exactly. Excellent. (laughs) Evangelion, which means good news. And that's also sort of built off of this understanding in the Old Testament about the announcement of God's kingdom reign in the world. Now, I'm going to go back to that and look at some Isaiah with you this morning because I'm a big fan of that book of the Bible. Um, But the gospel means the announcement and the heralding of the good news. So here's the part, though, that we have to sort of frame together. The good news of the gospel revealed in Jesus only makes sense over against the backdrop of the bad news. And we have to sort of think through the dynamics of what the bad news actually is. And here's here's the bad news, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, and I grew up in a Baptist world. Any of you grew up in a Baptist world? Yeah. So those of you who grew up in a Baptist world, here's a verse um, that you all know. Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Paul goes through the first three chapters of Romans, letting Gentiles and Jews know that that wherever you find yourself on that spectrum of Jew, the elect people of God, or Gentile, those outside of God's election of Israel, wherever you find yourself on that continuum, all are sinners. All have been infected and grabbed by sin. This shoots us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis, where the narrative of Genesis lets us know that Adam and Eve were created and they lived in harmony in the garden in full fellowship and communion with God. But then they disobeyed God in an act of pride. Right? Remember that the serpent said, if you eat this fruit, you can be like God. And so Adam and Eve partook of that fruit, rebelled against God. And then you might think that the whole universe, when that happened, kind of tilted to the left. Um, Things went askew. Sin entered into the world. And so we might think of sin from a biblical perspective in two ways. Number one, sin is those things that we do contrary to God's law and instruction. So we think about the Ten Commandments, lying and adultery and stealing and you know, bearing false witness, that's a covetousness. Ever hear a lot of sermons on covetousness? With those sort of things. We recognize those as individual sins that we do against God and His law. But there's all, the Bible also understands sin in this larger complex of, for lack of a better term, a kind of apocalyptic category that's almost personified. In other words, sin is this agent that exists in the world that operates against God and His kingdom. It's ultimately what Jesus had to come into the world to live and die in order to defeat it. Because sin had taken all that was good in the world and had made it askew, had turned, had curved it the wrong way. And so in the tradition of our church, we're kind of the Anglican tradition that recognizes its sort of Protestant roots very deeply. In our church, we understand that the Bible teaches that when sin entered the world, and again, this is the bad news, When sin entered the world, it impacted human beings in the totality of what makes them a human. So think about sort of the classic triad. Where's my fancy marker here? Being a human. Right? We think of it in three ways. As human beings, we're thinkers. And you, um, you know, people that majored in philosophy undergrad I hope none of my children do because we'll still be living in my basement in 10 years. So I get this. But don't tell Dennis Sansom I said that. He's yeah. teaching it. Um, but for those of you uh, who kind who, uh, of studied philosophy, the, the, the period of the Enlightenment emphasized our subjectivity as thinking individuals. Remember that guy, Descartes? I think, therefore I am. Um, remember not to get Descartes before De Horace. bad philosophy, oh, yeah. George. So, so I, I regret even saying that. Um, we're thinkers, we're feelers. Right? Our feelings, our emotions, our affections. This is part of what makes us a human being. And then we're also willers (laughs) or choosers. Okay? And the tradition that our church sort of sits within, again, believing that the Bible teaches this, understands that sin, when it entered into the world, didn't make all people as bad as they possibly could be. We know some bad actors out there. Um, But what it did do was it made all humans infected by sin in every area of their life that makes them a human being. In other words, my thinking self has been infected and affected by sin. My feeling self, my emotional life, has been infected and affected by sin. And my chooser, my choosing self, and this is the one that's the most controversial in the church, but my choosing, my my willer, my chooser, has been infected and affected by sin, so that, and we're going to look very closely at this Bible text today, so that the Apostle Paul, leaning on this massive Old Testament tradition rooted in Genesis and the prophets, would say, would use this metaphor to describe what it means to be a human being infected by sin. And this is a hard pill to swallow. This is why this is bad news. Do you know what the metaphor is? Death. You were dead in your transgressions and in your sins. Dead people on a slab, and again, I have no medical expertise, but I think I can confidently say that dead people do not raise themselves death has a totalizing effect on the human being. And so that's the bad news. The bad news is that we have been infected and affected by sin in the totality of our being. And that also means that left to ourselves, and this is is, again, this is the bad news, but this is the hard news, but it's all the backdrop of the good news. Left to ourselves, we are incapable of saving ourselves. We're incapable, left to our own devices, to make ourselves pleasing to God. And, and listen, there's a, we, we, you care, I feel this way in my life, and I'm sure you do as well. You carry yourself everywhere you go. Right? We cannot escape ourselves. So the relationships that we have with our spouses or our children or our co-workers or all the various, our family, the facets of our lives, we know, I think, on on a very personal and existential level that this is true. Because we see the way that sin makes relating to other people difficult. We know the way in which sin makes it difficult to relate to God. We know the way in which sin makes my feelings and my affections askew. In fact... Just as an aside, I think at the heart of the Christian faith and life is an ordering of our affections in the world in which we live toward the ultimate good, which is God himself. We're trying to find all kinds of small things out there to make us ultimately happy, when only God can make us ultimately happy, and we can only be drawn to God if he's involved in the process drawing us to himself. So that's the the bad news. I mean, the bad news is... And, and this is not popular. Um, this is certainly not sort of culturally appropriate in our moment. But here's the truth of what the Bible says really from beginning to end. Every human being is a sinner standing in need of the grace and forgiveness of God. Everyone. There is no one who escapes that. And by the way, that doesn't even... Oh, are you ready to hear this is... This is meat and potatoes Christianity right here. And it's in our articles of religion and our book of common prayer. But you ready for this? Oh, this is, this is, you might not even believe this. And it's okay if you don't right now because we can, we can bat it around. But in our articles of faith, our articles of religion in our denomination and where we are here with our local parish, it says that even your good works, the good things that you do before faith in Jesus are actually indicative of more of your pride than of your goodness. Oh, I mean, that is not that is not popular. Oprah would not like that. Okay, um, so I realize that this is these these are heavy things. They're 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 culturally counter to the way in which most people think on the sidewalk. But the Bible wants you to know that you are a sinner, standing in need of the rescuing grace of God. So the the bad news is really important to come to terms with because that is the negative space on the painting of the gospel that makes the painting pop when you're looking at it on a canvas. Because we've got to know the truth of our sinfulness, our deadness, in order that then we can understand now the beauty of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So, that's the bad news. And here's the good news. The good news is... The gospel, right? What's the gospel? I'll give you a basic definition. God did for us in Jesus Christ what we could never do for ourselves. God did for us in Jesus Christ. All this bad stuff here, God took care of that for us in Jesus in ways that we could never do for ourselves. Now, do you have Bibles here? Are there Bibles on the thing? Oh, yeah, sweet. Let me give you, let me see, if, I'll use this one so I can give you a page number. Uh, page number 613. This is Isaiah. Oh. Oh, Isaiah 52 7. Isn't that the same Bible? Maybe they. They're the same size and shape, but they're not the same. What? What's your uh, page number? Uh, 613. It's Ezekiel. You're 613. And you. Oh, oh, oh. Ezekiel. What is your. Why don't we give you one of these? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, 520. Oh, 5- oh, okay, well, how five. Oh. That's so weird. Well, find Isaiah. You can probably find Isaiah by going to the middle and just cracking it open. <laughs> then go right a little bit. And if you can't find it, no big deal. I'll read it out loud. This is one of my favorite verses in Isaiah. And by the way... This is a verse in the Old Testament that provides something of the substance of the term itself, gospel, for New Testament authors. And I would love to talk to you all about this, but I'm limited on time. The gospel is rooted in God's revelation in the Old Testament. It's not just... You know, people in the Old Testament got saved by doing good things, and then Jesus appeared. God's relating to his people from beginning to end has been an act of his saving grace from the Old Testament into the New. And here when you come to Isaiah 52.7, um, the great verse, um, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring, you see the word there, good news. The Greek translation of the Old Testament translates that, euangelion, right? So here's your gospel word. Well, what's the good news that they're bringing? They publish peace. They bring good news of happiness. They talk about salvation, deliverance from um, our oppressors, namely sin, as the Bible understands salvation from our, deli- our, our oppressor. And then look at the major announcement. Our God or your God reigns. So the announcement of the good news is an announcement of the kingdom of God making its appearance in our world. Our God reigns. The, the, the presence of God in our midst. This is a very Old Testament theme. The presence of God in our midst is our salvation. That is our deliverance. Being close to God in safety is where one finds deliverance in this world. That's one of the reasons why I think about the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And it's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why John 1.14 says, and the Word, namely Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That term in John 1.14, dwelt among us, can properly be translated tabernacled among us. So Jesus is the presence of God, the tabernacle of God in our midst. And that means that the kingdom of God is among us. So the announcement of the good news is the announcement of the coming of the kingdom of God. But you know what I love so much about Isaiah? You don't have to go but a few more verses. Uh, I'm going to count them. One, two, three, four, five. Nope, sorry. Uh, One, two, three, four, five. Five verses. And then you're into Isaiah chapter, the end of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, which for those of you who maybe have been around the church a little bit, you will know that this, these verses are read every Good Friday in churches all around the world. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender plant. Isaiah 53-6, all of us are like sheep that have gone astray. We've all turned to our own devices. That's the bad news. But God has laid on him the sins of us all. So isn't it interesting? And I, and I want you to think about this. The announcement in Isaiah of the coming kingdom of God God reigning, the deliverance of salvation that will be, that He will bring with Him when He appears in our midst. The promise of all of that is linked in Isaiah, or let me put it in other terms: it's actualized in Isaiah. By this suffering figure in Isaiah 53, who in his innocence takes on the sins of Israel and the whole world, so God's kingdom announcement is all wrapped up in Isaiah, and we're going to see it in the Gospels too, and in the Gospels with the death of the innocent, sinless one for the salvation of the whole world. Look at Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10. I love this because this is Old Testament. This is New Testament. Old Testament. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper him. Out of his anguish, his soul shall see and be satisfied. So that many are made righteous by the knowledge of what he has done. So that Isaiah backdrop, right? That painting here in Isaiah moves us to the next painting in the Gospels. And when you open up Matthew and Mark and Luke, and then John does his own kind of weird stuff. But when you get to John as well, I mean, what do you what do you see? It's almost as if you see Jesus stepping onto the stage of redemptive history with Isaiah as the script that's already been provided for him. And what is Jesus, what does Jesus do when he begins to preach? Think about this. In the Gospels, when Jesus begins to preach, what are his sermons right out of the gate? Repent for the kingdom of god is at hand Isn't that remarkable repent for the kingdom of god is at hand jesus is announcing the kingdom of god in their midst and as we'll see following him along he's announcing that he is the kingdom of god in the midst of the people so jesus announces all this and just so you know because i i um i know we've got lots of pictures of jesus around our houses and and, um, you know, various depictions of Jesus that we see on TV and all that stuff often makes me kind of cringe between us. Um, but but Jesus is a hard figure. In fact, it's pretty clear in the way in which Jesus reveals himself in the story of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that Jesus understands himself to be the Lord, Jehovah, God himself returned to the world and his people as The judge. In other words, when he says repent because the kingdom of God is at hand, that's not really a happy message. That's a message of everything that you've known up until this point is about to get flipped upside down, and the call for you is to turn radically back to God in me. Because the world as you've known it is being flipped upside down. Jesus is the judge. I mean, think about this, right? We follow Jesus along, da, 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 da. then we get close to his passion and his death. And what does Jesus do? He goes into the temple. This is the part that makes us cringe with Jesus. This is the part where we, I think if we walked in, we we're like, "How about let's not do that whole temple cleansing thing? That's a little off-putting. You're trying to you're trying to build a build a brand here, Jesus. You know, this is, this is not the way to do it. But Jesus goes into the temple. Begins to flip tables upside down. Has a whip in his hand. He's using it to drive people out. And you're like, oh my goodness, what an incredibly awful scene. But do you know why the Pharisees, and the Bible says, and when they saw him do this, they decided to put him to death. You want to know why? Because they knew the symbolic action of what Jesus was doing. Jesus was in his own action saying, I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah returned to my temple to cleanse it and to purify it. I'm the judge returned to bring justice. And you see this all throughout the promises of the Old Testament, the Psalms and Ezekiel and Isaiah and the prophets. He returns as a judge. But here's the gospel. Here's the good news of the kingdom of God in our midst that nobody anticipated. This is the stuff that blows your hair back. When you follow Jesus, because you follow Jesus along the Gospel you're like that, you know if He is who He says He is, all this makes sense. He has the right to talk to the seas, and they're going to obey Him. He has the power over death; He can raise the little girl to, to life. He has the power to forgive sins. I mean, you're following along, like, yeah. I mean, if He is God in human flesh, He has the authority and the right to do all of that. He's the Judge returned to bring His justice to the world, and we're just following Him. And then it takes this turn that no one anticipated when Jesus then moves toward his passion, his death and his resurrection. And this is the gospel. He allows his own judgment, his righteous judgment against lawbreakers to fall on himself. He becomes the judge who is then judged in our place. We're standing before the foot of the cross in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John seeing the Son of God hang between heaven and hell and our consciousness looking at that knows that should not be Him there. He is innocent. He is pure. He is beautiful. He's the creator. That, that He should not be on that cross. I should be on that cross. And we recognize that He is doing for us there He has lived for us, and now he has died for us because we know that the gospel at its very core is the story and the presentation of what God has done for us in Jesus. In my upbringing, and I'm so grateful for my upbringing, when we talk about the gospel, the first question that's often asked in gospel conversations is, how do I know if I'm saved? Right, I mean, that, that's that's the nature of a kind of... And, there's, and that is a good question. Lots of people in the Bible ask that question. So I'm not downplaying it. But what I think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Apostle Paul want you to ask first is, how does the gospel reveal for us who Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Who is this figure among us who raised the dead and then died for our sins? Who is he? Because... Our, this is the good news. Our salvation, our eternal hope, our confidence when we're in church together and we say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The, the only way we can say something as ludicrously crazy as that is not because of my individual story but because of the story of Jesus Christ who lived and died and was raised again. And I am drawn into that story by faith to recognize that that's true and it's true for me. Now, I want us to look at one more passage, if, if that's okay. And then we'll take some time for... If we have time. Where, where, where are we at? We are twenty-two. Oh, shoot. Okay. You're not going to get to ask any questions. <laughs> No, I'll try to stop here. Look at Ephesians 2. This is almost kind of just says it on its own. And I don't know what page number it is. I've got page 837, but. I'm... Ephesians? But I'm not confident, though. Okay, and so we're at Ephesians 2. This is your homework for the week. Read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 again. I'm going to read it to you right now. Because. This is one of the most succinct. Now, Paul can you can't prick Paul. He doesn't talk about the gospel. But Ephesians 2 is one of the most succinct biblical expositions of what the gospel is as it pertains to you now. We've raised the question about Jesus. Now the question is, well, how do I fit within that big story of what God's done on a global stage for the redemption of the whole world? Where, where's my story interline with that? And here's Ephesians 2. Are you ready? And you were, this is the hard pill, right? A spoonful of sugar might help this go down. And you were dead in, the, in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of humankind. So, I mean, that, that is, again, you've got to wrestle with that. It's really, really challenging. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You lived under the authority of the prince of the power of this world. He's talking about the devil here and your flesh. You were operating according to principles where your, your desires were disordered. But here's the great news, right? Verse 4. Now, I, love, I love these disjunctive um, conjunctions. But God. So that's who you are. Dead in your trespasses and sins. But this is who God is. He's rich in mercy. Because of the he gives um, forgiveness to those who don't deserve it. That's what mercy is. He's rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. That's. The good news of the gospel as it pertains to you. Jesus lived, died, and was raised again. It's the character of God in the Bible to take things that are dead and make them alive again. In fact, that's one of the key ways in which Christians can pick out our God and a lineup of other competing gods around the world. How does the, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit operate? He takes things that are dead like Egypt, like Israel and Egypt, like Zion in the Old Testament, like Jesus in the tomb, like you and me. He takes things that are dead and lost and He breathes life into them. That's what He does that's his character he loves to show off doing that in front of the whole world right so you are dead but he makes you alive and what's motivating him love don't forget that because god is overwhelming in his otherness and his holiness he is he's not to be trifled with Um, fear of the lord is a real thing and yet look at the self-same description of god here he's motivated toward you in your death to make you alive, because he can't get over you, loves you. Um, this is this is very much like the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Oh, Ephraim! Like you hear Hosea chapter twelve. Ephraim, you just keep rebelling against me, but I can't let go. I just love you too much. You're, you're my son. I can't let go of you. So that's the like God is um, he's um, un- unbridled and he's unhinged in his love toward you, going to the extreme of letting his own son live, die, and be raised again for you so that you could enter into that self-same life with him in communion and fellowship with God forever. So God, who's rich in his mercy because of his love, even when you were dead, he made us alive together. And here's the term. For by grace you have been saved. You've been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. I would love to talk to you about that. Um, so rich, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus. And here's the verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. Um, how How do we enter into this cosmic story of the gospel? By the grace of God alone and through faith. What is faith? It's the only legitimate human response to the grace of God. And what does faith mean? Faith means, number one, that I believe that it's true by his grace. And I believe it's true for me. I bank everything on it. And we wrestle with that, by the way, till the day we die. God, I want to believe this is true. And I want to not just believe intellectually that it's true. I want to place all of my future hopes on its truth for me. Um, I'll, I'll stop with this. Um, years ago, and some of you adventurers have heard the story, so forgive me for repeating, but years ago when we first moved to Birmingham, we visited a huge Presbyterian church in town. Some of you will know about the church. Um, So we visited this church, and and it was kind of a remarkable thing. On Sunday afternoon, two people knocked on our door from the church. Unbelievable. And they came in, we'd visited the church, we kind of filled out a little card, and they came, and and they, they wanted to share the good news with us. It's incredible. So they came in and they asked me, So, what are you here from? And I said, Well, I'm, I'm going to teach, I, I teach theology and Bible, Beast and Divinity School. They didn't care about any of that. They're like, Well, who cares about that? Um, and these, these two gentlemen asked me a question. And I was getting a little frustrated because I tried to let them know, you know, we're not just Christians. We're like, crazy christians you know and um and uh, but you know they had their stick that they had to kind of go through well part of that spiel which again i I can appreciate actually is if you were to stand today before god and he were to ask you why should i let you into my heaven that's a have you heard that It's a classic question in this world and it's a good question actually um I was a little snarky in the moment because I felt like we weren't relating to one another in this thing, but I, but, but I said, I said, Jesus, that's all I would be able to say is Jesus. That's the hope of the gospel. That's what being made, being born again, being made alive. It's being made alive. you ready for this to a truth of what God has done for you in Jesus. That's already true. And now you've been made alive to believe that it's true for you. Um, Jesus is it. This is a story about Jesus and him drawing you into his very life. That's the good news. You are safe, not because of your good works, not because of your moral superiority, not because of your intellectual gifts or your civic service. You are made whole and complete only because of what Jesus has done for you. And that gives you the freedom and the confidence to love him and to love your neighbor. Okay, Lord Jesus, bless these friends as we press on and go to church or go our separate ways. Lord, for whatever person in here, and I don't know all these people, but for whatever person here has never come to terms with the truth of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for him or her, I pray that by your spirit you would make them alive so that they would know that it's true and that they would know that it's true for them. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.